Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to On the Continent, your definitive guide to the biggest stories in European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Lassie Watson. On this edition, what a week it's been for Italy's top four. It's like 1955 all over again. Also in Germany, what a week it's been for Bayern Munich. 19 pot shots and they just could not score. Crisis? What crisis? And as we go into the international break, what is the point of the Nations League? Andy and Lash, um, those are three main topics, but Good I know, topics. yeah, not bad. Uh, uh, but I know you've got other stories that perhaps have caught your eye, Lash. Well, I kind of want to follow up on the chat you had last week because you had a very timely Juventus in crisis uh, moment last week. We, we aim to please the and, and then they go and lose to Monza. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, it's 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 not getting better, is it? I mean, well, no, because we're going to talk about the title race in Italy, yes, so we're yes. clearly not going to talk about Juventus, <laughs> which is why I'm bringing it up now. My God, they're not very good, are they, Andy? They're absolutely terrible. Yeah, they they are. They are as are. French referees, according to um, people in the wider world. Last weekend, we had uh, what appears to be the joint fastest ever red card. Jean-Claire Todibo, formerly of uh, Barcelona fame, sent off a nine se- after nine seconds for a professional foul that 
I think Dante had it covered, to be uh, perfectly honest. Uh, it was a bit of a Angers. diss, wasn't it, from the ref? Looked at Dante, so no, you're not making that one. I was like, <laughs> hang was. on, I'm old, but I'm not I'm not that slow. Was. I was disappointed by this because I saw it on the timeline on the Twitter saying, oh, he's off after nine seconds. Thinking, yes, this will be good. And then you watch it and you think, oh, come on, no. That is very harsh. Should not have been sent off, I didn't think. Exactly. And uh, he talked at length about it afterwards to Debo and um, how what was going on with French referees needed looking at. Oscar Garcia, the Rams coach, formerly of uh, Brighton and Watford, of course, uh, talked after his team's uh, defeat against uh, Monaco, most of which they played with 10 men, how um, people in Spain call him and text him all the time saying, why are your referees so bad? And there are more red cards in France than any other league in in Europe's top five. And that's without going into Ligue 2. Well, with nine seconds, I suppose there's still time for that record to be beaten. I'd love to see it, though, if someone just went into a game fully committed. <laughs> I'm going to make my mark here. It's I'm going to I'm going to set a record that cannot be beaten. <laughs> He'll just stand as close to the centre circle as he can and just bolt in and two-foot the fellow who's taking the kickoff. <laughs> like, boom! Record set and beat that. <laughs> <laughs> They'll remember my name forever now. <laughs> Let's talk about 1955, though. When it comes to Italy, obviously, rock around the clock, uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, for you youngers who don't know, was at the top of the charts, amongst other things. But for Italy, that was the last time uh, four top teams in Italy all lost their matches uh, in the same weekend, and they've just gone and done it again. I mean, it's only, what, 65 years or so since the last time, 67 years now? Yeah, you do wonder if it'll be that long again before Milan, Inter, Roma and Juventus all lose on the same weekend. As Lars was saying, the Juventus story, as as we went into in great depth with Nicky last week, is remarkable. I don't think any of us sat around and thought while we were recording that, that Juventus would actually go on to, to lose at Monza. So that was the... The, the biggest surprise. Um, Angel de Maria, though, was part of that, wasn't it? Uh, Monza wouldn't have won yeah, that if yeah, they I mean, down to 10 men. It, 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 definitely, it definitely helps. Yeah. And um, de, de, I de, think this Juventus team are more than capable of losing to Monza with 11 <laughs> men on the field. But, uh, you know, I think that is one thing. I think these are all very different cases. Roma, if they played that game against Atalanta another hundred times mm. I, th- I think they'd probably win it 95 you know that, they created a lot of chances I think if you look in the top six or seven Roma with all the extra firepower they have and with everything going through Paolo Dybala who obviously pulled out with an injury before kickoff um, and that, that probably made a difference the amount of goals they've scored compared to the defensive uh, p- compared to the offensive power they've got is underwhelming so far that's something that, that they can work on Inter have been absolutely panelled or their board have absolutely been panelled by the fans after that defeat at Udinese, which is their third of the season already. Um, I think really we've, we've, we've got to start with Milan because that was the big game last. Uh, Milan against Napoli. Mm. It, it felt really close, really well contested. And I, I don't know, do you, I, I wanted to ask you, do you believe after this that Napoli, who are are now top and have had a start to the season that kind of defies what turbulent summer they had. Do you see them as a, a contender? I, I kind of already saw them as a, as a team to look out for, certainly. And well, That's a slightly different thing, well, uh, Yeah, I guess. I mean, AC Milan actually had the better of the chances, I thought, in, in this game. So Napoli will count themselves slightly lucky in that sense. But I think the, the big story for me for Napoli is how... 
players who you might not have expected that much from are are just stepping up here now because obviously in the summer the, the locals were restless. Uh, Mertens was let go, Insigne was let go, Koulibaly was let go. Like really, even some of them are on the wrong end of their careers, maybe, but really towering figures in the sort of recent history of of that football club. Exactly. And if you look at the players they brought in. They were not big names, you know. The the, the South Korean defender uh, Min Jae Kim from uh, from uh, Turkey they brought in, uh, someone like Raspadori, Kvaratskhelia, uh, Cholito Simeone. Like these are players who had not proven that they were at that level. But what we're seeing is that they're they're doing it. I mean, Kvaradona has been a, f- a sensation, and you know, even <laughs> if he didn't score here, he was really good again, and he's such a fun player. Just really watch the price worth the price of admission on his own sometimes. And and you know, Giovanni Simeone is turning up with goals with uh, when Oshiman's not around. Raspiadori scored a winner last weekend. So you're you're just getting really important contributions from players who I think when they were brought in, I suspect quite a few Neapolitans might have been slightly underwhelmed by the idea that we're replacing basically club legends with these guys. But we're already seeing early in the season that those look like good bets. From, well, the, they, from the team's uh, sporting leadership. They didn't look un- overwhelmed, did they? At no. all. They looked like they were championship contenders to me. No, I think the interesting thing was how Milan came back and equalised and Giroud in the big games is just fire at the moment. We'll, we'll maybe come to his rather more precarious position with France when it comes to the World Cup a, a bit later on, perhaps. Um, but, you know, he's... He's a banker for for Milan at the moment. Who remember had uh, Rafael Leao out mm. suspended after that? I think it's fair to say um, contestable red card at, at, at mm. Sampdoria last week. But I think the fact that Napoli composed themselves and came back and and got that winner. I mean, when you were saying that they were getting more out of players who you wouldn't necessarily expect mm. so Simeone. much from, I, well, I was I was I was thinking of the assist. Actually, yeah. a okay. great cross by Mario Rui. And mm. I was like, have we finally Another got to that yeah, yeah. Mario Rui tribute episode? Yeah. I mean, this is what I've been waiting for for, yeah, he's been for good. a long time. He's it's, been good. It's, it's a great cross and a, a really, really terrific header. And you're right, for them to be able to make light of that absence of Aussie men is very impressive. All of a sudden, they look like they have depth. Yeah, and I, absolutely. I, I think that is important because I think over the coming months, Dot, and we can expect more from Simeone. We can expect more from Raspadori. We can spe- expect more from Tanky and Dombele. who al- Already has a, a, a Champions League goal to his name this season. Of course, he scored in the, the, the game against Rangers. Um, I, I do kind of think with Ndombele that for him to get back to his absolute best form, he needs to play every single week. And I don't know if that's happening in the medium term. But I, I think if he can contribute to any sort of level, I mean, he's he's an absolutely huge boost for them. And going back to where Lars started, Kim has been outstanding so far. That block at the end to to make sure they they, they finished off the game, he kind of celebrated it like a goal. You know, he's he's been absolutely towering so far. Well, that one question, though, it, it leads into that. The one question that I would ask, if we're going to talk of Napoli as serious title contenders... What are they like in defence? It's okay to talk about, you know, how they are going forward. But in Italy, to win that Serie A, you've got to have a tight defence. Yeah, that is 
I, I guess that's less true than it used to be. It's more about scoring the goals because it's a high scoring league now. Um, but but yeah, they they need to not be leaky. But I mean, that's that's definitely important. And I think you know, you go back to the the game that Lars was talking about the the, the weekend before, where Raspadori scored right at the end. I think to be able to grind out clean sheets when you're mm-hmm. not playing particularly well. Um, Alex Merritt looks like he's he's ready for the succession in goal. But I, I do think a key player so far this season has been one that has has, has been there. Um, he's, he's in his second season now. Is Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa. Mm-hmm. He has been outstanding. Another so really far fun this player. Season. He is. And what I think is interesting is you assume that he's the metronome that keeps the team going. And he's, you know, a less flashy sort of player. But he's been getting involved in the attacking side. I mean, you know, if you go back to Spalletti's Roma, Mm. and I don't know, I'm never someone who had huge pretensions to be a football player or prospects of being so. But... (laughs) I, 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 I don't often I thought you were okay actually in midfield you had to say that I lent you my boots <laughs> you did thank you <laughs> but I, I, I think I used to look at um, Spalletti's Roma sometimes and think that looks a fun team to play mm. for and I'm kind of getting the same feeling about this Napoli yeah they just have a lot of like you say fun is a good word for it like a lot of fun players and and just the prospect of if they could get uh, the enigmatic Tangi and Dombele, uh, fit and firing and and close to his full potential, like a team that has like Zambuanguisa, who you you see him as a metronome. I mean, I'm more like when you watch uh, his uh, his 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 overall playing style is a little bit more sort of ball winning. Like uh, yeah, he's he's got a strong physical stature. He's mm. not afraid to get stuck in. He runs around a lot, but he's a weirdly good dribbler. You, whenever you yeah. watch him, he's much better yeah. at getting past people than you expect him to be. Uh, so you have him. You have the prospect of Ndombele getting fully settled. You have the aforementioned Quaradona, who's just phenomenally fun to watch. There's, there's, there's so many good vibes in this team. Like for, for so, neutrals listening, who are sort of Serie A curious, maybe not Serie A fans, but Serie A curious, just book in some some quality time with Napoli. They're a fun team to watch. This is a bad point for me to say. I don't think they can actually win the league. Well, look, well, look if, well, if, if, if well. they if they finish top four, I think it's a huge success given what happened pre-season. I, th- I actually think, to be horribly realistic, now is about creating the distance between themselves and Juventus before Pogba and Chiesa come back later in the season. But why, why, do, Get you them points now. why do you conclude that they're not going to win the league? Because we've got a small sample size of the form that proves they might be able to. I, I have doubts whether they can sustain it over the season. Yep. But I would be happy to be proved wrong. I, I don't want to... I, I think I laid, like, the mother of all jinxes on Napoli a few years ago. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> I've been through it all. It can't get any No, worse. but that, that, year, that year on the Sari, when it looked like they were going to do it, you know, and Koulibaly scored that late header against Juventus. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And they were, what, they were one point behind with four matches left. Juventus were wobbling. They Their fixture list looked okay. I remember the night Koulibaly scored that header, I was just sat in the kitchen. I was thinking... They're going to do it, aren't they? So I just I went and I booked the flights and I got uh, got the Airbnb uh, to make sure I was like in Naples for the last game of the season. And like a few days later, they immediately chucked away some points to to Fiorentina, and yeah, like, it never it became clear that this wasn't going to happen after all. And I think that was to do with me. Yeah, I think yeah. there's nothing well, to do with the eleven players on the pitch. I think hang your head in shame. Me. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've ruined it for all of Naples. Yeah. So sorry, guys. They haven't and forgiven you. I'm for not going to say anything more nice about you. Yeah, I heard that they've got decent pizzas. 
there, but they're not going to. It's a great trip. I mean, I mean, it was it was very sad that they didn't win, obviously, <laughs> but because it, of you, you know, you know, everyone knew Sari was leaving, so it was quite an emotional game to be at anyway. And I ate some great pizza. The weather was nice. Okay, we talked about metronomes. We've talked about enigmatic players. Um, we've talked about dribbling. So I want to come back to that in just a moment because of this question by Dan on Twitter, and you can get in touch with us anytime during the course of the week at Football Ramble at Dotson at Ibio at Andy Brassel and at Lars Severson. This um, from Dan on Twitter. Why are Udinese so good this year? And may I add to that? Is it, is it because of a great dribbler that Everton didn't know what they had in him? Well, Delafeo has been great this year and he was particularly great against Inter. who could not deal with him at all. Inter actually took the lead in this game. But in the second half, they were panelled. Uh, you know, they, they were so good, Udinese. Remember, they've already beat Roma 4-0 uh, this season, going back to Dan's question, um, you know, they're one of three teams to be top over the, the weekend in Italy, Atalanta being the other. Um, I, I think Delefeo is, is a huge part of it, though he was um, great last season, but this is the best Udinese since the, the Guidolin years. And I, I think there are other players who are a huge part of that. Of course, Beto has, uh, has scored a lot of goals at the start of this season. Um, I think Sandy Lovrich in midfield, the Slovenian, um, one for your Norwegians to look out for last. Mm. I think he is a player who had a terrific second half against uh, Juventus. You know, there's there's a lot of talent there. Again, I'm not sure how sustainable it is, uh, a little bit like Napoli, but to be enjoyed at the moment. And it's not just that they're beating good teams, it's that they're really whacking them as well. 3-1. Yeah. Goodness gracious. And if you saw, uh, Lash, the celebration from Delafeu for the third goal, it was like, and it, it was a it was corner. Good. It was a corner. Yeah. Um, a set piece, you know, you would have thought that that could be defended. But Delafeu, and he was always somewhat enigmatic. He was never or ever part of a squad, was mm. he? He's one of those sort of idiosyncratic players that go off and celebrate on their own. But he celebrated almost as if he had scored the goal. Mm. And, okay, he was central to scoring the goal, but you just thought, oh, he's got a point. He's got every right to be celebrating like that. Hasn't yeah, and with Juventus, with Juventus, with Udinese, same colours, different vibe. Uh, with Udinese, generally speaking, <laughs> dear, dear. you're maybe not... Maybe you should never be, I mean, most seasons they kind of just rattle along in the lower half of the table and that's fine for a club of their size. But just, they are a club who've shown over a number of years that they are very good at finding undervalued assets in the, yeah. transfer, in the transfer market. Now, this has gotten harder over the last decade or so because the bigger clubs are smarter than they used to be. Uh, the, the Juventus were one of the clubs that got smart early and, and made quite a lot of money off of that. Uh, I think it's harder to find the gems now than it was 10 years ago. I think a lot of the bigger clubs with a lot of resources have wised up. But you should never be massively surprised when suddenly Udinese kind of come out of nowhere and are a better team than you expect them to be because there's a lot of competent people involved with uh, with running that club. I suppose in comparison to what's going on in Italy, what's going on at the top of the uh, Spanish league, La Liga, is... Business as usual, isn't it? The the top teams are where you'd expect them to be. I, I, I guess, though, I guess people didn't really know quite what to expect from Barcelona at the start of the season. If we're talking about Real Madrid and their 100% record, um, they have gone from strength to strength after having, I guess, a sensible-ish window. Um, Chouameni has obviously hit the ground running. But I think this win at Atletico Madrid was... Um, 
Firstly, an example of the distance between them and Atletico at the moment. And I think there is a considerable distance between them and Atletico at the moment. Um, secondly, I think it's um, an example that they can handle quite difficult situations. And thirdly, it was an example of Vinicius Junior at the, the peak of his powers. Of mm. course, um, he, he suffered from um, racist abuse outside the ground, which was abhorrent inside the ground from more than a small section of Atletico fans, it seemed, and um, that him and Rodrigo were able to um, help take Atletico apart, I think would have pleased more than a a, a few neutrals on the night. It certainly pleased me. And um, I think what we've seen about Vinicius, we already knew if we were paying attention that he was not just a good player, but a, a man of substance in that the way he dealt with this, you know, he's still, he's still so young, but you know, Tim Vickery will tell you, came over with no real experience in first team football with a 45 million euro price tag on him simply because Real Madrid, I don't know if they ever really believed he could become this good, but they were scared of missing out on the next Neymar just in case Mm. after what had happened with that transfer. But I think to sort of not just match that sort of expert uh, expectation, but like, go above and beyond it Mm -hmm. and show that you're as impressive off the pitch as on it, I I think is absolutely remarkable. Obviously, he's got his foundation. He does lots of um, good things for um, underprivileged and and vulnerable people as as well. And on the pitch, you know, he's one of the best players in in the world at the moment. You could argue that he won the Champions League for Real Madrid. but Well, he did, he did in, in terms of the goal, didn't well, he? Well, yeah. his, his, his colleagues might yeah. argue that they had something to do with it. <laughs> yeah, all. they would. But, um, Lars, how, how do you... Because um, Atletico have responded mm. to the blatant racism uh, that Vinicius suffered. But how do you, what do you make of the way that they respond to that? Because it's not quite definitive, is it? I feel like they're making the the mistake that a lot of clubs make in the sense that they want to serve their own audience. They they want to serve their fans. They don't want to go against their own fans, but they also want to be seen to be doing and saying the right thing. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes that can be complicated. And this is the thing that frustrates me. I think clubs should be braver and, and they shouldn't be afraid of saying, like anyone who who does anything or says anything like this are not welcome here. Like you don't, we don't want to. Be, we're embarrassed to be associated with you. Please go away and never come back. It it, it should really be that simple. I mean, they they, but, but the they way, did but, say but, that but they they did, mm. but it's also it, it was quite non-specific. I th- I think the statement, and I think the the elephant in the room here is the relationship with the main ultras group, uh, Frente Atletico, because um, they've got a, a deserved reputation for. Um, violence and for right-wing politics. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've seen, like with some of their actions, even UEFA Youth League games, that, that some of their number are literal Nazis. You know, you can't get away from that with, with, with some of their actions. But the club have had plenty of opportunities to do something about it. If, if this is making them actually do something about it, great, but I won't believe it in, in, until I've seen it. And the thing is, like a lot of ultra groups, they're so deeply embedded in the club. I mean, we saw recently when Paolo Futre, uh, Atletico legend, was uh, was taken ill, and the Frente Atletico um, uh, wished wished him well after that. 
and um, he, he put a picture of himself on Twitter saying, saying thanks, thanks to them for um, getting behind me and showing me the love and all the rest of it. And I was like, this is kind of problematic, isn't it? And then what happens a week and a half later shows exactly why it's so problematic. Unpicking that is an unenviable task for the club, but one that they have to be more proactive in dealing with. Now, yes, and you're right, Andy, they did condemn it. But I think in this very uh, long and and convoluted statement they came out with, there's a part in it where, and I'm taking this, I'm not really taking it out of context either, because you all know what the context is. But I I, want to read it because the wording is, uh, fans are asked for sanity and rationality. And yet during the week, professionals from different fields generated an artificial campaign, lighting the fuse of controversy without measuring the repercussions of their actions and manifestations, which references all the chat in Spanish media over the weekend over the subject of dancing and, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, this is bollocks. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. There's a sort of an equivocation there that I'm not. I don't. You don't. This is t- total nonsense. Mm. Just come out and say we're massively embarrassed to be associated with any of you dickheads mm. who said or did anything like this. Full stop. You don't yep. need anything else, right? It, it doesn't, doesn't, need to be a it doesn't matter. Does it? No. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's move on to the Bundesliga, where we're used to seeing Bayern at the top 
<laughs> but for a change, it's not Bayern at the top of the Bundesliga. It's a team that, well, a lot of people won't be that familiar with, Union Berlin. How have they managed to, well, to, to usurp Bayern from their normal position? Dortmund are there at number two, you know, second in the league, and we expect them to be there or thereabouts. But the issue is Bayern, isn't it? What's happened to them? They get beaten um, by Augsburg, and I think that that was down to the goalie, uh, Augsburg's goalie. Uh, Rafael Gikovic, he, he, was, he was fantastic. And I, I think that the, the drama of it after Borussia's winner, um, right at the end, is the fifth minute of stoppage time. Manuel Neuer comes up for the corner and straight away you're thinking, hang on, why don't Bayern ever in a position where they have to put their yes, goalkeeper up yes. for a, a corner? This is this is not He's normal. A good header of the ball, though. Don't it, knock him. It turns out. It turns out. Yes, and, and, and Neuer nearly scored the equaliser. Kikovic made a, a fantastic save from from him, and obviously, in a lot of the, the the German press in the day or two afterwards, they pointed out that um, Neuer had more shots on target than Sadio Mane. Which suggests a, a, a <laughs> level terrible. of a level of dysfunction, that's, that's and of terrible. course, Mane hasn't scored for five games. Now, I tend to like without reverting too much to cliche, going back to form is temporary, class is permanent. Mm. But I think we can talk about form not just in terms of fettle, but in terms of shape, and in terms of the shape of the team. Which Julian Nagelsmann, who who is under pressure now despite the fact they paid 25 million euros to to get him out of RB Leipzig, that they gave him a, a, a big contract um, and it would be heinously expensive to fire him if they were to take that course of action. I don't really get the impression that they want to do that. Certainly, certainly not yet. Um, th- there, is, there is question over him because, I mean, obviously, every time they lose a game at the moment, and this is their first defeat of the season, every time they don't win a game, because it's it's a four-game winless run in the Bundesliga. Um, It all points back to a Lewandowski-shaped hole, especially on a weekend where he's scoring goals for for Barcelona and he's been prolific in La Liga so far. But I think it's slightly more nuanced than that. It's not just about missing Lewandowski. Now, I think we saw in the early part of the season, they looked really free-flowing, Bayern. They were creating loads of chances, scoring loads of goals. They had this hybrid 4-4-2 with Gnabry and Mane at the the tip of it. Um, In the Champions League against Barcelona, they, as we were saying with Nicky last week, they played with Mane more on the the left of a three where we're more used to seeing him for for, for Liverpool. But I think in, in the medium term, Nagelsmann is more suited without a number nine. And I think it's interesting that in the aftermath of this, both Oliver Kahn and the sporting director, um, Hassan Salahamidzic, have said, we're happy with the squad. We've got everything we need. We're not going to go out and buy a striker in January. And to be honest, I don't think they need to. If they'd have been taking their chances, and it is a remarkable sort of semi-dry spell that, that, that they've had, we'd be talking about something completely different. So I do think it takes time. But the thing is, buying one of those clubs of such a size... A bit like Manchester United, I suppose, in a very different way, because Bayern are a lot more functional than them, that you can't have, Lars, a trust-the-process talk, can you? You know, you can't have a cold, yeah. dispassionate, it's... nuanced discussion 
of what's actually going on. Yeah, it's fine to trust the process as long as you're also winning every game. Yeah. Then the process yeah. can be trusted. Uh, if you're not winning four games in a row, you know, last uh, last time that happened was like 20 years ago, and then obviously, you know, flags on half-mast all over Bavaria and, mm. and, 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 you know, very dramatic scenes. I think it's it's interesting on a number of levels. It's interesting because I think this is the first time Julian Nagelsmann in his um, very short uh, career as coach has been put under this amount of pressure and been put in this kind of situation. Obviously, he's uh, wowed everyone with innovative tactical schemes and made his team play good football and stuff. But he's worked at Hoffenheim in Leipzig before, right? At RB Leipzig, if you lose a couple of games, no one cares. At Hoffenheim, if you lose a couple of games, no one notices. Like it's, it's it doesn't matter. Whereas the 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 pressure that's on him now from the media, from you know, from external forces is is tremendous. I mean, and he must know this. I thought the picture of them from Oktoberfest was absolutely amazing. If you haven't seen this yet, Go on, what is it? Describe it. Well, they, they, obviously they. I don't think. Well, I think it's he's a contractual on, obligation. Yes, isn't I think it, he's on record year. saying yeah. he didn't want to go, okay. but but basically it's a contractual thing for Bayern to have to go to Oktoberfest, and obviously which is a drink when, up. it's a drink up. Yeah, yeah, which obviously when you've not won in four games for the first time in like twenty years, you can't sit there and be happy in Oktoberfest. It'd be weird. So everyone's um, not very happy, and there is one picture in particular with with him, with Oliver Kahn, with their wives and Hassan uh, Saleh, with well, their partners, I should say, because Nagelsmann's not married, uh, and, and Hassan Salimicic. So it's uh, him and the two sort of big power brokers at the club, I suppose. And and the mood is not good. The, the mood <laughs> around the table is awkward uh, because currently things are bad. And I, I think it's interesting with this Bayern team, Having watched them in the Champions League and having watched them in the Bundesliga, it does occur to me that this is a team that's almost more suited to playing stronger opponents in the Champions League. Because mm. what they've gone for without with Lewandowski leaving and not replacing him with a typical number nine is that you have this sort of pretty fluid front line that you referenced. You have a lot of fast guys. I remember watching their game against Inter and just whenever they had a chance to attack, just the speed and the skill of the players who can run off into the distance. It's mm. terrifying to play against. But that is less effective in the Bundesliga when most of the teams you, you play are going to sit on the back foot. You're not going to have acres of space to run into. You know, part of the genius of, of Lewandowski was that he's so good at finding space where there was none. Because most of, of Bayern's games domestically, they will have over 70% possession and they'll spend the most of the game trying to break down a packed defense. That is just the reality of most of their games domestically for Bayern. And having someone like Lewandowski, who was so good at just finding a little bit of space in the area, of getting on the end of crosses, you know, finding little openings, you know, that helped them a lot. And they have these sort of fast, you know, Mane is there, Sané is there, you know, Müller is still lurking around. I suppose he can do some of those things. But you don't have that sort of guy who, if you give him an inch in the box, he will punish you anymore. You have a lot of players who could feasibly score a lot of goals, mm-hmm. but, but you don't have that killer. And yeah, they're creating chances, but... You know, their XG numbers aren't actually looking that good. Quite a lot of those shots were either from bad areas or with lots of people in position to block. Mm. Uh, I, I think they. I think we'll see as the season goes on that they will thrive in the Champions League against teams that actually come up and open up and try to play against them so you can run at them with all these little guys. But I think in terms of how to break down a packed defense and create quality chances when there's not a lot of space... Uh, that's something that needs to be worked on. And you mentioned, yeah, you're, you're right. The goal, the, the Augsburg goalkeeper was really good. Jan Sommer was really good. But 
you know, some of the finishes are not very. I mean, you go yeah. through. You know, they put out the the Bundesliga. They put out the video of all the saves Jan Sommer made in that game. And a few of them were good, but you know, a lot of them were straight at him. That, you know, they were saves that he should have made a lot of them. Yeah, I, they? I think yeah. I think they were. And I, I, it's it's the easiest thing in the world to say when you're having a slump and say, well, you know, if our forward had kicked the ball into the goal, everything would be much better. I mean, that goes for every <laughs> team everywhere. I mean, that's fine. But they are creating a reasonable amount of chances. They are dominating the games. But I do think. They need to work on, on on schemes for unlocking these sort of packed defenses. Probably, I think that the, the Lewandowski point you made there is is a really interesting one. The fact that it's often overlooked, and I've I've said this before with him, that um, one of his key attributes is literally fighting defenders. Mm. He he loves the physical side of it. He he loves bullying defenders. He loves getting it and giving it back. And they don't have another player like that. As as you say, with the others, it's about speed or it's about finding space mm. or in the case of Muller it's, it's about guile it's, it's something different I think the slightly overlooked thing is what Nagelsmann has to deal with in terms of the team composition now I think those are all issues that can be overcome with the level of quality they've, they've got but I think what's the tricky thing for him I mean it's his own quote actually talk about being hoisted by your own petard about um it's him saying like being a head coach is like 15% tactics and 85% social competence. Mm. And for him, the difficulty is with Lewandowski, you know exactly where you are because like Harry Kane, he plays every single game. He doesn't rest. He's the guy who leads the attack. Everything else just fits around him. Good comparison. Whereas, whereas now, if you've got maybe five, six, forwards of quality or wide forwards forwards who can be played in a 4 2 or in the front of a 4 2 like they were at the start of the season or whatever who all feel they should play that is a different level of ego management which I think now there's now there's no definite starter apart from Mane mm. there is no definite starter next to him or around him I think that is something totally different for Nagel's man to deal with. And there's an element of that in defence as well, where they also have... I mean, at the end of the day, Bayern Munich right now have more than 11 players who feel they should be starting every game. Yeah. And they have more than 11 players who have a pretty strong case for, yeah. for starting every game. And when you're winning every week, that's fine, because you can just tell them to shut up and go away. Like, we're winning every week. I don't care. Like, the team is fine. But the second you're not winning every week, suddenly the guys who are not starting will go, well, you know, eh, start me. And it becomes yeah. it becomes complicated. And again, I'm not... Nagelsmann, I'm sure he's a very smart guy, he's a very confident young man, but I'm not sure how well uh, life at uh, Hoffenheim and Leipzig have necessarily prepared him for having to deal with that kind of situation. And I wonder if actually this is not just on Nagelsmann now. I wonder if this is when having a very successful ex-pros like Salim Itzic, like uh, Oliver Kahn in the management structure, there could be some value in that because it, it shouldn't just actually be on Nagelsmann to settle people down if they're But they're new to it as well, aren't they? Yeah. It always yeah. is on the coach, isn't it? It's always is. You, you never get pressure on management. Well, you do to a certain extent, but rarely get pressure on the players. It's always, nearly always down to the coach. And Andy's already mentioned that Nagelsmann is under pressure. And this tweet uh, that we've got from Yardio, um, well, it, it it echoes your point. It, 
is Nagelman's job actually at risk? But this is a more salient part because, of course, when a manager's job is at risk or there's pressure on the management, then you look at the runners and riders to replace him. Mm. And one of the runners and riders is a name that many listeners will be familiar with, if not all listeners will be familiar with. And his name has come up in the mix, um, Thomas Tuchel. What can Tuchel bring to Bavaria is Yardio's salient point. It would be a very different approach. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, I think, in in terms of in terms of what's actually on the pitch, if it were to get to that point where where Tuchel were were buying coach, um, I think the, the the barbs about him being a purely defensive coach are unfair and incorrect. However, I think it would be a step down from the aesthetically pleasing mm-hmm. game that, that that Nagelsmann is moving towards, and that post. Van Hal post Heinkers post Guardiola is it's a big deal at Bayern. I, I, you know, to actually have a Bayern brand of football is is important to them. Um, I think the, the other thing is um, we've seen that. I think he's answered a lot of questions at Chelsea in terms of how he can relate to the board, which a lot of people didn't feel he could do effectively before. Um, that he can actually coach a team to winning a major trophy because his fingerprints are all over that that Chelsea Champions League win, so his reputation is very different. But of course, he's still got a reputation in Germany for being a bit of a ball buster. And of course, for not lasting that long at clubs. Mm. They've invested long-term in Nagelsmann to take them to a place. Basically, it's about weathering this current storm so they can allow him to see through the long-term job that they want him to do do you know i think at any other club logic says he stays but obviously poor results are unsustainable at a club of this elite size yeah and i'm, I'm glad you brought up Guardiola because there's a real sense that that kind of is the high watermark for the modern Bayern, the way they played in in that period yeah it is. and i think that's something that buys buys nagelsman some some time and some patience from upstairs now is that when they were good last season, yeah, went out to Villarreal in the Champions League and went out to Gladbach in the Cup, and that's all a bit disappointing. But when they were good in the league, when the team was functioning the way Nagelsmann wanted it to, they were hammering team and teams and dominating games and playing good football in a way they hadn't really seen it quite in the same way since Guardiola was there. And, and, and it seems to be that what he wants to move towards is something that's very much in keeping with, with that ambition. Yeah, well, it seems like both of you are saying um, that Bayern are going to stick with Nagelsmann and Thomas Tuchel isn't really near taking over that job. Well, I think the Tuchel-shaped shadow over him is quite unwelcome. It's bad timing him losing his job at, uh, at Chelsea. It, it doesn't. It doesn't help, even though there's a lot to not recommend it, mm. and I don't think it's their preferred option at the moment until he wins ten games in a row convincingly. But it's not going to go away, is it? There's another question from Callum on Twitter. At what point do we start getting excited by Union Berlin? They're top of the league. I don't know. I don't know a year about, ago. I don't, yeah, I don't <laughs> know about you, Callum. I'm, I'm excited, excited about them already. <laughs> so much excitement. But do you believe in it? For the, I, I tell you what, I don't. I don't. I don't think top four's out of the question. Uh. It, it's early, and Urs Fischer, the coach, would never say that is a a, a possibility. Um. But I, th- I think the, the most interesting quote about them this season is from Manuel Neuer, yeah. where he said they're the toughest team we've played all season. And I, I think that's quite interesting. You know, that, that they have won games this season in a manner that you would 
consider worthy of buying. I think when they went and won six one at Schalke, for example, the economy and the ruthlessness of that performance, the way that Fisher used the subs, I, I think is remarkable. They've got the best front two in the division at the moment in Jordan Sibachur, um, also known as Pefok, of course, and um, Geraldo Becker. And you know, we talked before about like Tuchel and coaching. Fisher is an authentic coach to get players to be better than they've been before. I think that's worth underlining. Yeah, well, if you want to hear more about Union Berlin and their historic season, uh, two weeks in a row, are they top of the league in the Bundesliga? If you want to hear more about their ascendancy, go listen to our latest episode of At The Match. Andy went to their first Europa League game of the season, by the way, taking in their legendary atmosphere and speaking to fans about what makes the club so special. So go find that in the Football Ramble feed. And by the way, one stat that I noticed, which is quite remarkable when you think about it, this match against Augsburg is the first time since 2020 that Bayern have failed to score in the Bundesliga. Remarkable. So just a final point, guys. Uh, could you help us out? How on earth are we going to survive this international break? <laughs> I'm watching I mean, football. <laughs> yeah, but what's the point of the Nations League? It's, it's good. <laughs> it's a you good can, tournament. You can't do better than that. Okay, well, well, this is Come going to be a, a party political broadcast on behalf of the <laughs> Nations League party. Go on, then. But it's just uh, no. I just think it fulfills an, uh, like, concept. Good timing, bad is where I'm at with this. Uh, conceptually, I think it works on a number of levels. I think it provides some of the weaker nations with competitive games, games that count against uh, teams that are you know closer to their strength level, which I think is very good for development. I don't think you develop. A lot by like getting thwacked by the bigger nations I don't think that develops you at all but I think playing more games against teams roughly your strength is is better and it does that it, it provides an alternative route to, to qualification which is an important thing for, for quite a few of the smaller nations and, and, and for the sort of mid-ranked ones uh, like the country I'm from, uh, it is an alternative route to a tournament, and it's also really important for your coefficient. And and I know if you're if you're English or you know German or from one of these big countries, you probably never had to care about the coefficient. Uh, but I think if you're from one of the other home nations or one of the sort of mid-ranking nations, you know that co your coefficient is life in terms of getting to a tournament. Uh, what pot you come out of when the qualification groups are drawn is so unbelievably important. And uh, and and doing well in the Nations League is a route to improving your standing there. Yeah, uh, and so that matters. Whereas for the top teams, party political broadcast continues. <laughs> cool. I didn't realize it for was, the bigger for over. the it never ends for the bigger <laughs> for the bigger countries. You get the thing that people are always moaning about. They want more competitive games against other big countries. The Nations League delivers that. So conceptually, it takes an awful lot of you boxes. See, I think the problem is yeah. But I think the problem is the last time we had Nations League games was in June. Uh, I remember it well. I saw it from the hospital. And there's a lot of, when everyone were really knackered and would the players would have rather have been on holiday, I think. And it was just a bad time to play a lot of international football. And now we have another batch coming now, just kind of as the season's getting going, uh, with everyone kind of looking at the World Cup. So for the teams that are qualified for the World Cup, they can't help it but use these as warm-up games to look at things. And the teams who are not in the World Cup, we kind of don't care because you're not in the World Cup, so who cares? So I, I think timing-wise, 
the last batch of games and this batch of games, I can completely see why people don't care about it. But I maintain that conceptually, and I'm going to say it again, the Europa, the, the, the Nations League is conceptually sound <laughs> and in the future will be will, will gain its rightful appreciation for being a good uh, idea. And I hate to give you A for credit for anything, but Andy, I think it's a good idea. Andy, you, you know your music. You know your music really well. Did you not groan each time a band came out with a conceptual album? Did you not? Oh, no! <laughs> yeah, sorry. I thought you were going to say um, B-sides and rare cuts. I don't mind them. You're saying this is like a rock opera. This is the... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the album that time forgot. The conceptual album. Yeah. I, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm with Lars. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a useful tournament, but... It's like so much of international football. It's it's a victim of chronology, really, um, because you know I guess like people before would have said we need more meaningful international football, and it has been provided. You know, it's reduced the amount of pointless friendlies. And God, I think all of us around this table have sat through enough fair pointless point. international friendlies to fair know point. that creating a plan to move on from that is. A very, a very good plan, and as Lars said, I think UEFA deserve credit for it. But of course, when it comes to international football, and you know, you go here, you go here's your meaningful football. And you think, yeah, but not these matches, and not now. <laughs> and you know, where, where do you put them? Yeah. It, it never comes back to the real problem in the timetable, which is that the club game is ridiculously overloaded. Um, not taking care of, of player welfare and really shortchanging the fans because they pay a fortune through getting into stadiums and TV subscriptions for often substandard product because there are simply too many matches in the calendar, something which is not going to change in the near future because elite-level football is, is a huge cash cow. But I, th- I think here, when we talk about the chronology... I think a lot of even naysayers of the Nations League, once they got over the, I, I don't understand the format, well, pay attention to the <laughs> format for more than a minute and you might get it. Of course. I think the first edition broke down a lot of those pre- prejudices and people thought, oh, this is actually a good thing. And I think we saw it with England, for example, You know, when they got to the, the final four of the first one. I remember the match where they went through, I was, I was at it doing one of the, the early at the matches, actually, mm-hmm. um, England versus Croatia. Full stadium, kept the buzz of the 2018 World Cup going. People cared. People wanted to win. England pushed to win in that game in the end. So the the players cared. But, of course, the players and fans are are only human. And the fact is, COVID changed all of this. Because, as we said, football couldn't take a step back and realise what was good for it. It couldn't say, we've got to deal with this timetable. It said... Let's get the show back on the road by cramming the same amount of football in less time. And so you've got a sense where two seasons practically mould into one, where player welfare is completely off the menu, that people don't really care about that. So players aren't onside, fans aren't onside, because it seems like overkill. And that really is 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 the problem. I mean, in, in terms of... Is relationship to qualifying, like Lars was saying, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's really important. And that suggests it won't go away anytime soon. But does as well. it have a you future to... that is recognisable today because they're already inviting South American clubs to join in, what, two years' time? Yeah, I think that there, there, there has to... 
there has to be a future for it. But I think it's the way we look at the game, the way we perceive the game, the way the players are treated that are all super important in, in this. And as Lars was saying, the scheduling. Because the experiment with these international breaks where you have three games, I mean, it's meant to basically not break up the club game too much. But, you know, I, I think that feels long to the players. It feels long to the fans. I think there are other issues other than the Nations League that, that need to be addressed. But the Nations League is, is taking the brunt of it. It's time to ask you both to recommend a game of the week for us to uh, watch. Um, I imagine that your suggestions would be dominated by uh, the Nations League. Lars, do you want to go first? Um, yeah, I, mean, I guess, yeah. I, I'm going to be slightly more flippant than Andy, which is obviously very unusual for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, very, very unusual. But, but listen, I've just talked about how you might think the Nations League is a load of all nonsense. But for some countries, it really matters. And it happens to be that for one of those countries, it's, it's my country, it's Norway. For Norway, it does actually matter. Because if I'm not completely mistaken, obviously, if we win our group, we're in uh, on, on the second tier. We're in, uh, in, in, in League B. If we, we have a real shot at winning our group, we're topping the group now. We're undefeated after four games. Uh, and we're in group with Serbia, Sweden and Slovenia. If we win the group, obviously we go to Group A, which is which is kind of fun and groovy. But almost more importantly, we we move into Pot Two, I believe, for the next uh, qualifier draw for the next set of mm-hmm. qualifiers, which makes a really big difference in terms of getting to a tournament. So so this is this is important for us these two games, and uh, the first one is against Slovenia now this weekend. You know, you might not think Slovenia and Norway is where Norway is how we want to spend your weekend, but you know, hey, it's going to be Alling Holland versus Jan Oblak. What's not to like? And so, Slovenia is a very beautiful country, anyway, isn't it? Obviously, yeah. yeah, not as beautiful as Norway, though. No, also obviously, <laughs> <laughs> battle of the beautifuls. <laughs> yeah, indeed, it's Alling Holland. It's the ice troll versus the uh, occasionally best shot stopper in the world, Jan Oblak. And we what some, more do you want? What more some we want? Some Lutefisk, exactly. Some Lutefisk to go with. Bring this. it on. Do you know the Lutefisk? No. Well, Lutefisk. I'm listening. Yeah. Uh, do you not watch well, the advert? I don't think we have that kind of time. Do you not watch the advert? Gravlax! Gravlax! It's a good advert. It's a good advert, except the bloke's Norwegian, not Swedish. Is I think. he? In the advert? Yeah. I think he sounds pretty Swedish. Well, it sounds Swedish from the side of Sweden. So, Lutefisk is made from aged stockfish or yeah. dried salted cod, which yep. is cured in lye. Yep. Okay. As you do. We eat it's it. gelatinous we... in texture after being rehydrated for days prior to eating. Do you know, it's a delicacy in Nigeria in a different way. In a different huh. way, yeah. We oh call it days. banla, banla, uh, the dried... Uh, anyway, we'll come to that another time because, Andy, you've got a game of the week for us as well. Yeah, I have. And you're going to have to be quick to, to catch this one because um, it's Thursday night. It's not a top-of-the-table clash uh, like Lars's, so not quite as glamorous. It's a relegation battle in the Nations League between France and Austria. And we said how, you know, a lot of people have felt like they, they want to tap out of the Nations League. Well, this does matter to France, not in terms of the actual tournament itself, of course, because they can't get in the final four anyway after quite a poor start, which has incorporated two defeats at the Stade de France. But because they've had quite a turbulent time with uh, scandal at the French Football Federation, with the Pogba affair with a ton of injuries, with the way that the last Euros ended and the the shape of the team since, the, the tactical shape of the team. So they need to get some stuff together and they need to try out some 
um, fringe players, uh, Benoit Badia-Shiel being one, Yusuf Fana, also Monaco being, being another. Um, there, there, there is an opportunity for some of those players because, of course, they have expanded squads of 26 going into the, the World Cup. They haven't got much time to get it right. And I think France are quite sure of, sure of where they should be for the World Cup. So I, I, I do think that's, that's an issue. Um, interestingly, this sort of scratch defence is going to be up against two really informed but not necessarily glamorous strikers in Marco Anatovic, who started the season on fire for Bologna, and Michael Gregoric, who's, who's started really well for, for Freiburg. So there's the potential for embarrassment there. So therefore, I think we're going to go French for the food of course. Now, Let's go, go. One, no, one thing that I learned in, in, in France is it's very important to have your steak rare. And of course, France looking a little bit underdone at the moment. Oh my God. Potential for embarrassment indeed. The Football Ramble is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 